Hi there, I'm Professor Jeffrey Bame, and you're listening to the Travel Mug Podcast with Matt O'Donnell. Hello, everyone. I'm Matt O'Donnell with the Travel Mug Podcast. So, have you thought about doing it? Deleting it? Yes? Maybe you haven't? Well, either way, this podcast is for you. Now, honestly, Silicon Valley, not as a whole, but some leading members of Silicon Valley have been very irresponsible with the way it handles the data it gets from us for free. Professor Jeffrey Bain at Temple University, a great resource for Action News over the years, knows a ton about the ways we communicate and the tools we use to communicate, which keeps changing. We sit at his office at the Annenberg Building at Temple University for this podcast to ask the question you may be asking. Is it time to delete your social media accounts? Travel Mug, here we go. Professor Jeffrey Bame joins us. You are the chair of the Department of Media Studies and Production at Temple University. You're also the author of the award-winning book, From Cronkite to Colbert, The Evolution of Broadcast News, which we will discuss a little bit later. And you also contributed to an Action News report on fake news, right. which was way back in late 2016, which we might also get to. But right now, Professor, I want to talk to you about Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> and how tough it is to be him these days. I don't know if it's tough to be Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> but boy, that company's got a, it's a whole lot of issues to work through right now, and the news just gets crazier every day. Is it... Is it Truly, we're seeing Frankenstein's monster being played out in real life, or is it really not that bad? Well, I think that they built this incredible technology with unlimited capabilities, but no one really understood or even still understands what it's capable of and how people are going to use it. So once you break down all these boundaries and you give people the world over the ability to communicate in all sorts of overt and covert ways, it's hard to know what exactly they're going to do with it. And we're finding out every day all the uses that people are imagining that they can do with this platform. So let's take it to an extreme, Professor. Should one delete their Facebook account, their Twitter account? No, no. I mean, any more than one should uh, hide themselves away and never talk to another human being again, right? These are amazing tools of interconnectivity, but they have everything to do with your own network of people, right? No one's, no two people's Facebook page or Twitter stream is alike. Everybody's doing their own thing. I mean, we have a lot of overlap. We're paying attention to similar things. But the strength of our network is in the people that we are friends with. You're probably one of those people that sees plenty of positive things with social media, as well as these things that we're seeing, these dregs that are, that are being brought up uh, through all these different political investigations and whatnot. But you do see the good in Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. Oh, I think that the platform is really ultimately agnostic, right? You're an old media guy, so am I. Right? And what's happened in the world over the last 15 years is that the kind of control the old uh, local television station or the big New York Times could exert over the flow of information, that's completely eroded. Anybody can say anything. So in one hand, these are in, it's a democratization of communication, right? People can broadcast, uh, they can podcast, they can make 
whatever contribution to the public conversation they want. So that has an unquestioned upside because people who never had voice have tremendous voice now. On the flip side, people who had never had voice have voice now. And so it's wide open to whatever anybody wants to say. And some people want to do a lot of good and some people want to do a lot of bad. Obviously, your expertise is in the methods that we communicate with one another and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, Tumblr, all these are just one or two or three different ways to do so. Not that it would be the best way to communicate with one another. Do you think it is a valuable, valuable way to communicate not only with just friends and family, but also to get all of your news from? Well, let, let's qualify that because I don't think anybody, quote, gets all their news from any one place, right? We live in a really complex news ecosystem where news exists in all sorts of places. And oh, all it's a misnomer when you're like, oh, you get all your news from Facebook. Really, people don't really all do that. Yeah, I think that's right. And when you actually look at how people consume news, what you see is people get news from lots of different places and, and sometimes surprising a certain percentage of loyal Fox viewers watch MSNBC and, and the other way around. Uh, so people get information from all sorts of places. And even within that, on social media, to say you get your news from Facebook doesn't tell you much of anything because maybe you're reading the New York Times that your friends have posted to Facebook. Maybe it's the Washington Post. Maybe it's Breitbart. Maybe it's 6ABC. It's really hard to say you know, where the individual stories come from that populate any given person's Facebook feed or Twitter stream. Facebook's getting beaten up pretty badly, and who knows if Mark Zuckerberg will end up testifying before Congress. I know uh, maybe it's happened already, and you're listening to this. The question here is, do we as users of these sites have as much culpability, if not maybe even more, in allowing ourselves to maybe be duped in certain ways? I think that we have a responsibility to be a little skeptical, I wouldn't say cynical, but a little skeptical uh, of the information that comes at us. I don't think there's anything new about that at all, though, right? Uh, I think that the whole system of checks and balances in this country and the notion of a free press as a key to democracy was built on a, on a healthy skepticism, a, a, a healthy doubt. And I think we have to have that same uh, sort of literacy with our social media to think through what is this thing that's coming at me? Where did it come from? Where did it originate? These are complex questions because sources of information are often obscured when we see it on social media or really anywhere. So I think we have a burden to be a little more media literate and civic minded than maybe we didn't used to because we don't have gatekeepers and editors, benevolent gatekeepers making these choices as to what information is good for us as citizens in a democracy versus which information might not be. Because they were new, we maybe let our guard down. Is that one way of describing what has happened over the course of, I don't know, the last decade with Facebook? I'd say, I would say it's not about letting our guard down because this was new. It's just how rapidly the, the technology has been uh, created and disseminated. Right? When you think about how long it takes a particular technology to really integrate itself into society. So it took television a good decade before between its advent to when most households had television how long did it take facebook and then twitter youtube a matter of years to go from being a fringe technology that only a few people knew about to being a global phenomenon where what a third of the world's population is on facebook now mm -hmm. i always remember the scene in back to the future where michael j fox's characters having dinner with his old or his 
I guess his mom. <laughs> and they say, oh, do you have a TV? He's like, yeah, we have two of them. They're like, wow, you must be rich. I mean, there was a point where having two TVs was like wild. But as you say, TV evolved so much. It was almost like a snail's pace compared to what we've seen or literally in the last, you know, five years. Right. If you go back to the 2004 presidential election, there was no YouTube. All right, so we have three election cycles ago, if I'm doing the math right on that one. There wasn't YouTube. Now, YouTube is overwhelmingly uh, one of the central media locations of our time. So the capabilities this, these things have, the speed at which they're invented, uh, revised, uh, the capabilities continue to change. So live broadcasting on Facebook, you know, that's a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, and the savviness with which so many different kinds of actors and agents domestically and globally are trying to figure out what they can do with these things, right? So people are thinking every day, what can I do with this in a way that no one thought about with television? I want to do a quick thought experiment here. Yeah. Aren't those fun? <laughs> Facebook went online February 2004. Twitter, 2006. If... The September 11th attacks, which happened in 2001, were to take place during the age of social media. How do you think things would change? And you don't have to go through a litany of everything, but take the thought experiment and run with it, I guess. Well, what I thought a lot about after September 11 was how we all watched the replay of the planes hitting the buildings over and over and over and over again on TV. And so there was a lot of talk at the time of if we didn't have TV, how would we have understood September 11? You know, so I, I don't know the answer to your question, but clearly differently. Right. At the least, so many other people, so many different kinds of people, we would be getting firsthand reports from people in the building or on the ground. We would get all sorts of wild conspiracies and rumors and innuendo. Uh, we would also get a lot of great reporting and interesting insights. So we live in such a cacophony of information and opinion now that even is different from, like you're saying, from 15, 17 years ago. I have to wonder, and I've kind of played this in my mind myself because, you know, I, I was reporting during it and you remember it fully as well. You, you would have to wonder if because of these images being so fantastically bizarre, seeing a plane crash into a building, how many people would even believe it while seeing true videos being streamed on Facebook and Twitter and whatnot? Well, interestingly enough, I still think people would be watching it on TV because the, the evidence is still when these really big things happen in a society, television is still where people go. So we don't want to throw out, uh, you know, new media don't replace old, they just uh, complexify the old media. So we go back and forth, we dual screen. I just read a book the other day that said these media are interoperable, meaning we can move back and forth among them. They speak to one another, they draw on one another. So it's not really that we live in the Facebook age and now there's no TV. Uh, we spend a lot of time with both. So something like September 11, really visual, intense, breaking news, I, I suspect television would still be the primary place, but at the same time, Social media moves so quickly, and that's, I think, a really key point, how fast information or misinformation or just wrong information can circulate through social media. So that would have been uh, an added layer to how we were trying to process such a strange and intense occurrence in the first instance. And another big problem with social media, it doesn't run linearly. It's not, a digital doesn't run sequentially. 
and you get bits and pieces from the past and the far past and then five minutes ago and then 30 minutes ago and it's hard to really put together a puzzle when you don't have things in a sequential order yeah so so on the negative side we have lost some coherence in our national storytelling we have so many storytellers telling so many different stories and your point is right it's a postmodern story landscape that is disjointed and nonlinear. I like your answer about how TV would be the place where people would turn to again, because I'm in TV, and you, of course, <laughs> that is your field as well. Um, but we'd be tweeting while we're watching <laughs> we TV. Would. That clearly is a thing. Have you heard of the caveman hypothesis? It's, it's, a theory, it's a theory where we as human beings just go back to what is so comfortable for us and what's been there for the longest, the wheel, building a fire, being around things that are warm, Driving a car, which is more recent, obviously, than being in caveman, but it's something that we just don't really want to give up. And we've been watching television now, and it's usually been the focal part of every single family room in America for decades upon decades. And so maybe that's somewhat of a driver to people saying, you know, when big things happen, like you say, well, I'm just going to go back to what's the most comfortable. I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting point. It's a, I, I think of it in terms of a question of centralization. What pulls us together? What are the things in, that happen in our world that are so big that we all want to come together? So here in Philly, I don't think people were watching Twitter during the Super Bowl. I think people were sitting around TVs because something that big that was that much of a community event, the television was still the central screen that people gathered around. But I think that there are very few things now that pull us all together. The push seems to be towards dispersal, towards the margins, where we can all go to our own room and look at our own screen, at our own feed, as opposed to that uh, mythical world where mom, pop, and the two and a half children sat around the, the big screen TV. Good old 2.5, right? We'll be right back with Professor Bain right after this on the Travel Mug Podcast. <laughs> Music for the Travel Mug Podcast, provided by A Pregnant Light, one of my favorite bands. Soulful, emotional, authentic, that's big with me, authentic, extreme, purple metal, as Damien Master, the band leader, likes to call it. Purple metal. You can listen to APL on Bandcamp. Back with Professor Bame and the Travel Mug Podcast. He's from Temple University. He knows all about mass communication and media. And sure, he can unlock all the mysteries of what social media is going to do to us now and in the future. New York University Professor Scott Galloway is one of the leading voices in the country calling for GAFA, which is his name for Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple to be broken up. Now, I know you're not on the business side of things per se, but from a communication standpoint, Professor, would making these four companies break up into several other smaller companies just add more confusion to the whole element of trying to communicate with each other? Just imagine tripling the amount of social media accounts you might have to have. What do you think about that? I'll answer your question by not exactly answering it, which is to say that there is a tension between economic consolidation 
and uh, the democratization of communication that we were talking about earlier. So obviously those are the major companies in the communication field. Is that that different, however, from NBC, CBS, and ABC in the 1960s when 90% of the population watched primetime TV and those were the only three companies producing programming or distributing programming? Right? So, so our media world has always had this balance between consolidation and freedom, and we see that more clearly now in this age of social media. So Facebook is an international behemoth, one of the biggest companies in the world with incredible influence over our communication landscape. On the other hand, Facebook has very little ability, as we've learned to the negative, to police any individual post and what you might put on your feed and I might share and like and tell somebody else to look at it, right? So there is that tension point between control and dispersal that is symptomatic of our time. I tried to find your personal social media accounts, and I couldn't find any. Do you have any? Oh, I do, but I take advantage of every privacy feature. Really? I don't want my stuff wow. circulating to anybody who can see it. Well, I have to say you've done a very good job because I could not find you in the Google machine, as at least when it comes to any Twitter account or Facebook account. So you've cracked the code. <laughs> you've remained private while being in this whole business at the same time. Oh, I just like to dig into the privacy settings, right? Taking that extra minute to read, what is this thing? What if I toggle this to on? Can I ask you why you do it? I mean, is it about, you know, having students and trying to separate? Because I try to do the same thing, you know, with broadcast. I try to keep my family out of things and stuff like that. Is that your reasoning or do you even not want to tell me? <laughs> no, I think for me, social media is for my personal life, a way that I connect with my friends and family. It's not my public presence, right? It may be social, but that doesn't mean it's public. Those are those are different categories, right? I socialize with my my significant people in my life, but then a public presence, perhaps like what we're doing right now, is something quite different. I, I'm really surprised and shocked that you're able to do something like this because I don't think I've run into anyone who is of a an esteemed level of a certain amount of power or influence who doesn't really exist publicly on social media. <laughs> <laughs> Public being, being. You just can find you very easily and, you know, there you, you tweet every day and people see things and I just, I'm just, I find this fascinating. Yeah, well, it's interesting, right? I mean, because social media for a lot of people is a way to connect with friends and family, people they went to high school with perhaps or they haven't seen in a lot of years or who lived across the country before they moved. Uh, other people, it's about brand management and trying to generate followers and likes and boost their public persona. So, Which is what I'm trying to do and not necessarily something. You're trying to educate people, job one, right? You and I are in slightly different fields in that regard. Yeah. Uh, your book, From Cronkite to Colbert, argues that a new journalism formed with such shows like The Daily Show, Colbert Report, and that this wave will actually save the media industry. Explain what you mean by that. Hmm. You know, a lot of people wanted to suggest, and this is this is interesting dovetailing with our conversation, that uh, maybe 10 years ago, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert were doing what they called fake news. That phrase now means something quite different. And, and I argued in the book that what they were doing was something very similar to what an old the, the old CBS news anchor Walter Cronkite might have been doing back in the 1960s or 1970s, but in a very different kind of way that they're still really interested in the role that a free press can play in a democratic system, 
but using humor and more contemporary entertainment techniques to try to achieve that old goal. Uh, I might have been a little optimistic when I wrote the book. It's been a decade now, believe it or not. Uh, I might have been a little more optimistic about their power to transform the media landscape because what we're seeing is a lot of their techniques of, of doing information and argument in non-traditional ways. That continues to multiply, but just like where we started this conversation with what do people do with social media, uh, you see people harnessing these tools and techniques for good, and you see people harnessing them for bad. And so, again, the technique itself might be agnostic. It can be uh, used in different directions for different kinds of reasons. What do you think about this whole idea of every time you turn on, it's mostly with the cable channels, it's Hollywood squares, you have the, the three boxes up top and then three on the bottom, two rows, and there's a lot of yelling going on. It's, I find it very counterproductive. What do you think? Oh, I think that the phrase cable news isn't exactly accurate. I'm not sure that any of those 24-hour channels are in the news business. I think they're in the entertainment business, and they use news and politics as the vehicle. They use political ideology as their brand differentiation. But I think that CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, those folks are in the business of getting people to watch TV so they can sell advertising, and news just happens to be the thing they use to try to achieve that goal. It could be Hollywood Squares. It could be trivia. Yeah, it could be good-looking celebrities. Not to beat up on them too much, though, there is a certain level of tweaking the knobs where it would fall into your theory with your book that there is a level of entertainment that you can have while still educating people. Absolutely. I mean, I think entertainment, entertainment's a really interesting word. If you think about the verb to entertain, I'm going to get a little, a little wonky on you here for just a okay. second. Please but, do. you know, to entertain, usually we think of that meaning as to distract, to amuse, to give one pleasure. And that's sort of the sense of entertainment might be bad. Uh, on the flip side, to entertain also means to think about. You can entertain an idea, to consider. And we would be wise, I think, in general, to think the ways that entertainment works in both directions. Right? Just because we're laughing doesn't mean we're not thinking. And often we're doing both. And the funniest jokes are the ones we have to think about a little bit. Where uh, so, there's a lot of truth in the joke. Absolutely. That makes what, what makes it funny. All right. So entertainment is a really valuable way of engaging with the serious world in which we live. Fake news. You appeared on a special report that we did with Action News, and this is back during the uh, – I guess it was right after the election in 2016. And the question I have for you now – and, you know, I'll post the link so people can watch it uh, – Professor Bame, then and now, they can see. Is fake news less of a problem that we try to give it credit for? Are we really all so gullible that we go on the Internet and see things and believe them right away? Exactly what effect all this fake or misinformation is having on individuals and voting totals, that's really hard to say. There's a lot of competing research coming out right now. But what does seem to be very clear is the kind of information that moves the fastest and the broadest on social media platforms leans towards misinformation. The, the I've huge seen a study, study that, right, said that just that, came yes. out, published in the very important journal Science Magazine, that found that in every regard, not just politics, but in every domain, false information traveled faster and further than true information. And I think what that's really about is emotion. It's about the things that make us uh, really make us angry or shocked or bewildered. And we want to say, oh my goodness, have you heard this? Check this out. I can't mm -hmm. believe that this is happening. 
which brings us back around to one of your original questions about what obligations do we have in this world in which we live. And part of that's to say if we read something online and we say, I can't believe this, that's a good indicator we ought to stop and think about whether it might be true or not. Yeah, certainly with consumers, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Right, so maybe nothing new under the sun. It's an old rule. <laughs> that was in the Bible, so yeah. Uh, we'll wrap things up with Professor Bame right after this. going to wrap things up with Professor Bame from Temple University having a great discussion here about social media, about all the problems with society that it has, and maybe some of the things that it's actually good for. Uh, video technology, uh, Professor, is getting to the point where, and you've probably seen it, they can make someone say something and look like they're saying it when they never, ever said it. And President, former President Obama was used as a subject in one of these experiments. I'm imagining in a couple of years it's going to be, get to the point where you can literally fake actual events. Mm -hmm. Maybe it'll be longer than that. Who knows? Does this terrify you? Absolutely. No, there's no doubt about it. We, you know, the old phrase, seeing is believing. Well, now that can't be true anymore. Uh, we have, it's gotten very difficult to know what is true and what is not in, in a very profound way that all of our sources of evidence that we always used to rely on to be able to say this is true and that is not. I've got a record, a document, uh, a visualization of the thing that happened. Yeah, when we lose the visual record as some kind of official uh, record of what's happened, that those are confusing times. And, and we've been moving this direction for quite a long time, and, and that's the final step that's going to be be scary. Yeah, I think that's the right word. To How, how are we really going to be able to know what we can count as true and, and what not? And, and look, we live in an entire system, a political system, a legal system that is based on the notion of truth and rational argument. And if those go out the window, it's hard to know exactly what's going to follow. So digging even deeper into this rabbit hole that we just dug, are you worried that reality will fracture to the point where we don't really even live in it anymore? Because just think about how you walk down the street and at least half the people are looking at their phones while they're walking. And that in and of itself is living in a virtual world where you're not looking around at the landscape. You're just seeing what's coming out of the the ones and O's in the pipes. And so, again, the question, are you worried that reality is devolving to the point where one day we're really just going to be in this sort of matrix or, hmm. or like Tron, like another way back, uh, you know, one of my favorite movies when I was a kid, the Disney version. Are you worried about that? Well, I think it's not a question of reality because when it rains, we get wet and we can't uh, – that doesn't matter what phone we're looking at or what technology we're engaged in. It's how we understand the world and act toward it that is the issue, right? Reality exists and there's no two ways about that, but what sense we make of it. And based on that sense we make of it, what do we do? How do we vote? How do we organize or do we not? Those are the kinds of questions that I think are going to really be profoundly in play. I'm thinking right now, and I don't know why, about the H.P. Lovecraft story about this man who is discovered to be just a brain in a jar, and he's talking to the, the narrator of the story, and that's like the real climax of the story. And, and so that, that's, I guess, taking this even further is one day we'll just be brains floating in formaldehyde or something, and we don't need to have physical bodies to experience anything anymore. 
Or maybe I'm getting too far ahead of things. Or you're going backwards, because <laughs> if you read some Philip K. Dick from the 1960s, 1950s, oh. he's imagining these scenarios, right? I mean, I'm, I'm another. I'm a big fan of him too. The, a lot of philosophers in the 1970s, 1980s started saying that reality had become disjointed and we were living in a virtual world, a simulacrum. Jean Baudrillard wrote many years ago. Uh, and if you think of a place like Las Vegas, that doesn't quite seem to be real, and it's been unreal for a lot of years. So, And there's no clocks. You never know what time it is. You can't see outside, so you just keep gambling. Right, right. So this kind of disassociation, this fragmentation, some people have been saying that's been the nature of our world for 30 years. Now the technology is advancing to where that might just be accelerating a little bit. I think also just thinking about what you just said, if we were worried about this in the 70s and 80s and we really didn't you know, fracture our reality, then maybe we won't do it nowadays either and we'll be okay. Or that balance. People still exist. People have needs. People have desires. Uh, and a lot of those are quite wonderful uh, at the same time. We live in a strange world right now, and, and it's pretty hard to know what's coming next. We're getting into some deep stuff, man. <laughs> Let's get back into some like more <laughs> cotton candy topics here. What is your favorite movie or TV show about broadcast news? Well, I think the movie Broadcast News Mine too. might be just the best one of all. And, and just, I mean, for those that didn't watch it, why is it so great? Oh, I think that it really captures that tension, and no disrespect here, in, in the world of broadcast news. Is it broadcasting? Is it news? Is it, is it television? Is it journalism? So this Maybe. was late 70s, early, early 80s, 80s when it came out, right? Yeah, yeah, Albert Brooks, William Hurt, Holly Hunt. William Hurt, yeah. yeah. That's my favorite. Uh, what's your least favorite about broadcast news? Movie, TV show, whatever. Mm. You want to? I'll name you mine. Go ahead. Why don't you, you can think about it, because yeah. I'm putting you on the spot. I, I've had all this time to think. <laughs> right. Up close and personal, mm. without question. I know that uh, Temple has a, um, a relationship with the family of Jessica Savage. It was supposed to be about her life, and they felt it was too depressing, and they just blew it up, and they made it about some happy, you know, princess-like story. I just, <laughs> I just couldn't stand it. Okay. I didn't like it at all. All right, then. You, you still thinking? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beg out of this <laughs> one. Gonna, okay. <laughs> Final question for you, uh, Professor Bain. Will Facebook be around in 2025? Oh, I have to believe it will be exactly what it'll look like. That's hard to know. What its competitors will be, that's hard to know. All right, 2025, what's that, seven years from now? A third of the world's population are on, is on Facebook. If it were a country, it would be by far the largest country on Earth. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it'll stick around. I mean, people, have, every time there's some problem, television's still with us. People still go to movies. People still listen to the radio. Right? So the specific technologies change, but the general use of technology, of communication technology, those don't go away. Right? So, so the notion that we have this democratized way that we can talk to other people, whether they're our friends next door or strangers from across the world, uh, that will only increase. There's a book I'm thinking of. Maybe you know who wrote it. I wish I, I could come up with it right now. But it, the premise of the book is the longer something has been around, the longer it will be around. And that goes with radio. I mean, it was supposed to be done in the 80s, AM radio at least, uh, TV, all these mediums that are so old now. 
Telegraph, I guess, is kind of like a fax machine now, but they're still around, and we still use it. Well, fax machines are, are gone now, too, because we have scan and email. Sure. Well, and I have a fax app that I use, <laughs> right. so that's my exactly. fax machine. Exactly. You know, the 8-track went away, but music is alive and well. So, again, it, is, is it the container, the vehicle, the, the thing, the device, or is it the use? The use continues. The, very, the specific technologies, those might change. Professor Bame, I really enjoyed our discussion. We got a little deeper than I even thought we would, uh, but I hope everyone enjoyed it, and I really appreciate your time. All right, Matt. Thank you. It's fun. Go Owls. Yes, indeed. Sometimes it's really tough being on social media, all the negativity, all the nastiness, all the judging. The misinformation, deliberate misinformation, but I'm not going to delete my Facebook account, my Twitter account, Instagram, Tumblr, etc. It's just way too important to keep the door open to communicating with you, the viewers. As a journalist in Philadelphia and in the Delaware Valley, we need to be able to hear from you. And social media, it's a, just a great way to do that. Almost the best way, aside from actually meeting you in person, which we love to do as well. So I'm going to continue to use social media. I'm going to continue to try and be as responsible as I can, and I hope you will too. That's a travel mug. I'll see you next time. Travel mug over now. out.